So welcome everyone uh, to JTalk. I think it's a great uh, pleasure to have uh, Ruby Ziegler here, um, and who's uh, an associate professor at the University of Reading, and uh, also, I don't remember, but is it Centre for Refugee Law in Oxford? Uh, uh, yeah, Refugee Study Centre. Refugee Study Centre in Oxford, uh, and uh, uh, is an associate fellow uh, in, 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 the, in that space, and he's really a re real expert in the area of international refugee law and has devoted a lot of his attention to these um, these uh, issues um, and uh, you know is very much in, in cognate fields of my own um, he also you heard him last night he spoke about grew up in Israel and uh, worked in uh, the legal legal department of um, the IDF and then went to study in Oxford um, and, uh, and then remained in the United Kingdom in this area of expertise um, and um, has taken a great interest in, uh, although he doesn't focus exclusively, focuses on refugees and issues around refugees across the world, but has taken a great interest in um, the situation of African refugees in Israel, um, uh, which we're going to hear more about. Um, I was myself, uh, I'll give a talk in a in a month's time, I was on about uh, two big protests, uh, Ruby will talk about it in his talk, uh, in Tel Aviv when I was there about this whole issue. And um, it is uh, something I think that uh, it's really important to explore and uh, understand what is going on in Israel's policy around this, because obviously we feel strongly as Jews who, who ourselves have needed refuge. And so, um, uh, we couldn't have anyone better to do this than, than Ruby. So um, thank you very much for being willing to do that. Uh, she's here on a, on a personal visit, uh, and uh, uh, but offered to come and speak at the at the shul, and I'm very delighted to uh, to say yes. We have a J talk with a world expert in this field. So welcome. And thank you very much. Thanks very much, David. And, and thanks, everyone, for being here. If you don't mind, I'll, I'll probably stand for, uh, for most of this. But um, two things I'll say is, is um, um, I realize there will be differential levels of, uh, of knowledge, both about law and about the situation in Israel more generally, and not least uh, in respect uh, of asylum seekers. So if I... Uh, if I delve into things that, uh, that are unclear, then stop me uh, abruptly in, a, in an Israeli fashion, if you wish. Uh, and, uh, and I may or may not respond in Israeli fashion because I've been anglicized now for 11 years, so it's not entirely clear. Uh, so you, will be, you, will be, uh, you may or may not be a proportionate response. Um, but but, that's, but that's, that's a first kind of general point. The, the second is uh, I do want to have a discussion uh, uh, ideally, at the end, and I know, I know the whole time slot is about an hour, right? Is that fair? Uh, just, oh, just a bit more than an hour. So I'll try and not, not go uh, too far overboard. Uh, having said that, there is, uh, in addition to some materials that I want to cover, there are some videos, which is partly why I wanted uh, an internet connection. So um, from some of the demonstrations, not the most recent ones, but actually the ones um, in one of the iterations of legislation around detention of asylum seekers, uh, that I, uh, I may, may want to try and uh, project to you uh, if possible. Um, so I think the first kind of question that would probably come to your mind, looking at this title, is why do you have the word infiltrators on this slide? Why is the word infiltrators in 
um, quotation marks. Uh, why do I say dysfunctional? Uh, I don't say so it's just non-existent. Or I don't say functional, which would, would make the talk very short. Uh, and, and, um, and why is it relevant uh, to talk about, uh, about Israel's asylum system um, comparatively or internationally? So, so I'll try and talk, I'll try to get all of these terms uh, in, in due course uh, clearer as we proceed. So generally the, the game plan, as you were, uh, for, uh, for the next, uh, as you were, four to five minutes, uh, is as follows. What I, what I want to start is just by setting out the context of Israeli asylum law and policy. So just to understand where Israel stands internationally when it comes to um, implementing obligations that exist internationally when it comes to refugees, uh, obligations that, that just this country has signed up to as well, certainly uh, um, in the last, uh, the last couple of decades. Um, and I then want to talk about this term, infiltrators, because it is a very, very charged term. And the reason it's on the slide is because this is the legal term that is applicable to the approximately 35,000 African asylum seekers who currently reside in Israel, 92% um, of them from either Eritrea or Sudan, the rest from other countries in uh, in Africa, it is a term under Israeli law that describes the process of somebody entering the state without authorization through one of its neighboring countries. And this is critical because it means that if somebody comes from Ukraine or South Africa but flies into Israel, for instance, and then would want to seek asylum or overstay their visa and then seek asylum in Israel, they would not be, quote-unquote, infiltrators. Um, the second reason this is, of course, an important term is because the origins of this term, and I'll get to that a bit later, is from a law that is an anti-terrorism law or anti-infiltration law that was passed in the early 1950s. The purpose of that law was to try and prevent as you were, Palestinians from um, entering Israel in order to commit terrorist offenses in the years immediately preceding the War of Independence or the 1948 war, whichever term you wish to use. It. So it's a term that's historically associated to a criminal activity that relates to hostility towards the state. And so employing it in an asylum context is particularly problematic. The sad reason, this is of course important, is because of the consequences, the legal consequences of being labelled as an infiltrator, uh, nor least the, um, the administrative and criminal penalties that attach to it. So I'll try and get um, to explain uh, how that came about, uh, and then talk about what that actually means for those roughly, as you were said, 2,000 out of the 35,000 Eritrean uh, African asylum seekers in Israel. What status do they actually hold in the state? Um, and the key point here is, uh, and it's, um, uh, it's a figure, or, or, or two figures I want you to, uh, to bear in mind as we go through this. The first figure is 13, um, and the second figure is um, 11 years. So the figure 13 is the actual absolute number of individual Eritrean asylum seekers who were granted refugee status in Israel. Remember the general number. Uh, the second 
11 years is the length of time that some of the persons who have entered Israel seeking asylum have now been residing in Israel in this very precarious status. And I'll explain why these matter uh, also internationally. Uh, and then I want to sketch out the, as you were, comprehensive picture of the policy measures that the state of Israel uh, employs or has been employing uh, in respect of what it perceives to be a, a genuine problem of, um, uh, of unsolicited arrival of, uh, uh, of individuals through its southern border. Uh, and it is through its southern border, so the law applies to anyone entering through any of the neighboring states of Israel. Uh, it is very difficult to quote-unquote infiltrate <coughs> Israel through the Lebanese border and certainly nowadays through the Syrian border. Um, if you want later on in questions, this doesn't directly relate to this, but, but is of course very relevant. Uh, of Syria's neighboring countries, of course the only country that hasn't taken in refugees from Syria is Israel. There may be objectively good reasons for this, uh, but it is a fact that's worth bearing in mind. We think about Turkey, Lebanon, Iraq, Jordan, the fifth country the border Syria is Israel, um, in the Golan. So, so it's also difficult to infiltrate Israel as you were from the Golan. Um, and, and Jordan would not allow infiltration by and large, um, for very good relations between Israel and, and Jordan. Uh, and so infiltration within this frame has happened from Egypt. Uh, up until the year 2012, and this is why the first policy measures that I'm referring to is the closing of the border. So until the year 2012, from the time at which Israel signed the peace treaty with Egypt in the late 1970s, the, the vast length of the border, the Sinai between Israel and Egypt, was crossable. There was no physical barrier. It's a little known fact, but it became well known in the, area, in the late 2000s, and this fence was completed in uh, most deliberate speed. It was, uh, it was a very well-funded enterprise um, for this reason of stopping um, further, as we were, infiltration to the state. I want to talk about the sort of financial measures the state uses, the sticks and the quote-unquote carrots, so incentivizing people to leave and disincentivizing them from staying, and to talk about detention and I won't go into much of the, the presentation, the longer, the longer presentation has, has uh, uh, a very detailed account because I've written on this, as David suggested, uh, extensively, uh, but I'm, I'm not going to bore you with those details uh, and that there isn't time as well, uh, but I am very happy to send the presentation to people if they're interested in the legal framework. Uh, I mean, suffice to say uh, that the Israeli Supreme Court very rarely strikes down uh, legislation passed by the Israeli parliament only happened 15 times um, in the history of the state. Out of those three times were in three consecutive iterations of legislation relating to detention of asylum seekers. This demonstrates, from my perspective, the, um, the, the problematic nature of those pieces of legislation, but it also demonstrates how significant this has become in the Israeli mindset and discourse. And this indeed, when I get at the end to talk about the political discourse, I think is the, is the big question that, that should um, concern us, um, uh, interest us perhaps. Why is an issue 
um, that is actually of fairly limited effect on the state as a whole. This is not to say there is an, an effect on specific areas within Israel, most dominantly on South Tel Aviv, where um, the lion's share of those asylum seekers live. Um, in the absence of, of alternatives that the state uh, would have provided. Um, as a general macro-level problem for the state, this ought to have not regained the level of, uh, I would say, anxiety and vitriol that you will see exposed when I get to the political discourse. And I think it's important for us, and it's also, as David said, important uh, for us Jews to, to, to try and reflect on that and, and, see, and see what uh, will make of, uh, of statements that are made by ministers of state um, on behalf of a, of a Jewish democratic state. Um, so, so this is what I want to, to try and get to. So, so the first point, which I, which I will really try and, and, and go through um, um, briefly, uh, is just understanding what it means to be granted or not granted asylum in Israel. Because perhaps for unsurprising reasons, Israel was um, one of the first signatories to the International Refugee Convention, so the convention relating to the status of refugees from 1951, um, signed in Geneva, came into force in 1954. Israel, I believe, was the 11th signatory. Uh, Israeli representatives were present in the Conference of Plenipotentiaries, which is like a conference where the delegates come together and discuss the details of the conference. If you read those, which I have, you see that the Israeli representative was pushing to a small and liberal interpretation of the convention, to a more expansive idea of various terms within the definition. There were various Jewish organizations present at that conference, Agudat Israel and others in World Jewish Relief. They were all pushing for expansive interpretations. Again, unsurprisingly, thinking about 1951 and the years preceding and the impetus for having an internationally binding treaty. So in 1954, You've got a treaty that Israel was supposedly uh, interested in and happy to see ratified. And yet, in 2018, so 64 years later, it is still the case that Israel doesn't have primary legislation that regulates what is the refugee status determination process, what is the legal status and rights that attach to refugees and to asylum seekers. So if somebody is one of those, remember the first figure I mentioned, 13, 1, 3, uh, Eritreans that get um, recognized as a refugee in Israel, there is nothing in Israeli law, and I challenge anyone to read and, and find a definition, that define the visa they get or the status they get as a refugee. What they get is a temporary residence visa. That is a temporary residence visa that other people can get as well if they, if they come to Israel in other capacities. It just doesn't exist under Israeli law. Now, as an international lawyer, you know, I would say when you sign a treaty generally, it's very good practice to implement it in domestic legislation. But you could come round to me and say, well, what matters is whether there is actually proper status and rights in <coughs> law and not so much whether the convention itself gets interpreted. Well, as I'll, I'll try and suggest later, that refugee status determination process that does exist in Israel exists in government regulations and in a way in which it is applied uh, that leads to that very dismal figure in relation to Eritreans and, and, uh, and generally to a very precarious status for those who hold it. So Israel doesn't have generally a regime that says 
under its domestic primary law what happens to those who get refugee status. It also doesn't have, very critically, a regime that says what happens to those who you decide are not refugees, but you cannot send them back to their country of origin still. Right? So they don't meet the 1951, the refugee definition has a, has a set of criteria, as you would imagine any definition would. So it means somebody may not meet that full definition, but they still, it still would be too dangerous for them to return. And ultimately, I'll tell you in a second, ultimately, um, this is the is official Israeli position in relation to those Eritreans that are not recognized as refugees, that it cannot send them back to Eritrea, nonetheless. But they don't get, as a result, what exists in the European Union, exists in Latin America, exists in the um, Organization of African Unity um, Convention, uh, a set of either subsidiary or complementary protection that complements, as the name suggests, or be becomes a subsidiary to that regime um, under the convention itself. So if somebody is rejected um, and doesn't get refugee status after the process is undertaken, they are just still infiltrators, undeportable and non-deportable infiltrators, with all the consequences that entails, which I'll, I'll get to see. Yeah. Yes, um, yeah. So, so, yeah, yeah. So, thank you. So, um, so I don't have a specific slide that actually projects the refugee definition, but I'm at this rather sorry state in life where I pretty much remember it by heart. So, so a refugee is a person who has a well-founded fear of persecution, who is outside their country of nationality and has a well-founded fear of persecution for reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group or political opinion, and is unable or unwilling as a result of that well-founded fear to um, avail themselves of the protection of their state of uh, nationality. So this is the definition. So it means, for instance, that if you apply the definition in a way that doesn't cover domestic violence, or that doesn't cover gang warfare, or that doesn't cover indiscriminate violence in conflict, like happens in Syria and certain areas, you would still be um, under the wider principle in international law, which I, I think I do have later, which is the non-reformer principle, so the principle of non-pushback, or non-return of persons to a place where their life or liberty would be in danger. Um, it is possible you think about it as circles, the circle of people who are non-deportable under accepted international law, which Israel, to that effect, abides by, is wider than the people who get formal refugee status. So those are people who are persecuted but not persecuted. They're not necessarily persecuted. They may have a. They may have a. Um, they may be in a position where their life or liberty is in danger, but it may not result from persecution necessarily. It may result, for instance, uh, as the example I've given in Syria, that the area in which they live in Syria is being indiscriminately bombed. Uh, 
that the, that area is not they're not targeted because they are of a particular ethnicity or because they practice uh, um, their nationality or they have a particular political opinion, but it is too dangerous for them to return to that area. Um, um, and of course, it's uh, I mean that's a wider debate to be had. Uh, there are attempts to broaden the refugee definition to try and try and bring greater parity between it and the groups of people who are, um, who are non-deportable. But one way of mitigating that gap, which exists, uh, is through those regimes that exist, as I say, regionally, uh, in Africa, in Latin America, in Europe, uh, to a lesser extent in, um, in South Asia and uh, in the Far East, of subsidiary or complementary protection regimes. And, and they don't exist under Israeli law. And this, to my mind, kind of goes into a broader point about uh, about Israel and its um, state of ease or unease with the idea of non-Jewish immigration. Um, so the sense that even symbolically the law that allows for um, the return of Jews to, to Israel um, and the near automatic acquisition of citizenship, uh, I say near automatic because I mean, it's actually important. Um, for reasons I can get to later, um, but the near automatic acquisition of citizenship if you're if you're if you're Jewish, actually that law came before there was a nationality act uh, in Israel, so it was 1950s opposed to 1952, and to date there is no immigration act or immigration law that sets out very clearly um, how somebody, for instance, who came as a work migrant, work migrant can become a permanent resident and as a result can become naturalized. There is a haphazard set of arrangements in secondary legislation and government regulation about family unification, about work migrants, about tourists, about that. There isn't a comprehensive framework for immigration. And, and, and that, that is actually for a country that has just celebrated its 70th anniversary. I always say, people say it's a young country. I remind people that when he was admitted to the UN on a second try in 1949, it was the 57th state to be admitted to the UN. There are 193 or 194, depending on how you count Palestine. So it's one. Of, it's on the top one said oldest countries globally. It's not a young country, uh, and it's about time it has an immigration act. But that's uh, uh, but that's uh, a broader debate to be had uh, uh, later, perhaps. Um, so you might say, well, okay, so so this um, convention was ratified, but Israel never thought of itself as a country to which people will come to seek asylum. Um, I mean, Jews will come because this is this is the place where if they are persecuted globally, they have a safe haven, and, and obviously that that is one of the main if not the main reasons the state was established. Uh, but others, why would why would other people in the 50s, when it was a pretty poor state, it was attacked, why would they come? And indeed, they didn't. Um, so there was no um, asylum-seeking phenomenon into Israel, uh, and, and that allowed the state to engage in uh, in several ad hoc um, gestures of goodwill, um, solicited in the sense that you know who's coming, you know how many people are coming, you know when they're coming, you know where from. Uh, akin to, in modern refugee law terms, resettlement. Keen to the idea that these are people you know are already refugees, you don't need to go through a refugee status termination process, and you just give them status. 
And so uh, this is what Israel did with the Vietnamese vote in 1977. Uh, Menachem Begin famously said, we, we will, refugees, we can't, we can't let this vote kind of roam around the, uh, uh, the Ceylon Sea and not pick it up. So there was a, an Israeli vote that picked it up. Similarly, uh, the Rabin government uh, took a plane load of Bosnians from during the Bosnia War. Um, uh, Barack, uh, when he was prime minister, took a plane load of Kosovars. There was a acceptance into Israel of the former fighters from the southern Lebanese army. That's not quite asylum in the regular sense. You, you could actually say there was uh, helping those when that when you withdrew unilaterally from Lebanon were under a risk to their lives because they were fighting on your side. Uh, so not quite refugees in normal sense, but nonetheless, they were brought in. They were all recognized formally as refugees. And there was one iteration of an ad hoc arrangement. If you read the government um, resolution, it says explicitly, this will not be a precedent uh, of 492 Darfuris in 2007 uh, under the then former government. Um, but until the late 2000s, there was no sense that there's a need for uh, comprehensive asylum legislation. And then in the late 2000s, for a variety of reasons that I don't really have time to go into, um, people primarily from Eritrea and then Sudan and South Sudan, one country until 2011, have uh, started crossing the Sinai Desert, usually smuggled by Bedouins through the Sinai Desert, often not knowing in advance that Israel is where they'll end up often being kidnapped from camps in, um, in the, just to the north of Eritrea or, or indeed in, uh, um, in the Sinai itself, uh, often tortured um, in, in that process, have started crossing the, um, the desert into Israel. And yeah. Uh, because they were, what, why were they kidnapped? Because, um, because the, because the, because the plan was for um, so so this this was fairly later on in the process right so not in the very not the very first arrivals but two three years down the line their family members of that were already in Israel and so they would get I mean these are videos not for 11 in the morning on Saturday but they would get a they would get a phone call from um, a Bedouin um, group in the Sinai saying we've got your brother or you've got your cousin if you don't pay ten thousand dollars or something uh, we're going to torture them and you'd often hear the torture um no, sounds that, sorry and yeah well did did horrendous things to, to people in the Sinai in a, in what was um alternately and and again you know think about the geo i said i i, I don't really have time to go into this in, in full detail but Think about the geopolitics of Mubarak following in 2011, a, a period of, of genuine instability in Egypt in 2011-2012 until uh, the Muslim Brotherhood took over effectively for several years. And ironically, on this front, having cooperated quite strongly with Israel, perhaps to the mutual benefit of both states. Um, so um, in 2011-2012 in, uh, was the height of unsolicited arrivals. Uh, and, and, and in the middle of 2012, um, this was um, largely halted by the creation of that barrier along the Israeli-Egyptian um, border. So at the height of arrivals, arrivals were at about 1,000 a month. But that was, that was in the year 2011. But remember now, we're talking at present at a total of 35,000 
people in the state, which is about 0.4% of the Israeli population. And so this is, this is the scope of the issue at hand today. Um, wasn't necessarily for the trial. But you, you had a question, of course. Uh, I was just going to ask, how, how was the Ethiopian study and how was the Black Hebrews, the organization out of uh, Chicago, yeah. uh, were they into this? Yeah, so, so, I mean, that's a, t that's a tangent that's interesting. Um, so, so they, of course, have not entered in, in this manner. So they haven't entered irregularly through the being, being stuck through the border. They've entered legally through an airport and the question was whether they'll be recognized as Jews and consequently be automatically citizens or whether they're not, in which case they fall into this uh, legal vacuum that is the Israeli immigration law more, or policy more generally that I've started describing earlier. Uh, some of these issues are not resolved fully. Um, so I don't have a full answer to you. But, but, but the fundamental point is because of their method of arrival, they're not infiltrators. Um, um, I, I was thinking, as you, as you started asking your question, you were going to go in a slightly different direction, which is how do Ethiopian Jews in Israel um, find the situation of, of uh, Eritrean and Sudanese? And that's perhaps... That would have been the follow-up Okay, so that's perhaps something I'll get to a bit later when we talk about the political discourse and indeed the... Um, the uh, well, I mean, I, I'll save it for then, but, but, but the presence of some... Um, some racist undertones, uh, if not, not overtones, in, in some of the discourse. I'm, I'm being very careful because I, I don't think that's the fundamental main reason for this broader scheme, and I don't want this to be the, the main message as well. Uh, but I do think that exists, and I think some of the quotes leave very little doubt that this, this is part of the story as well. Um, so I, I've already talked about the numbers. Um, so what I want to talk next is about their status in Israel. So you don't need to be, um, well, uh, put, put it in the context. Even if you are a lawyer, you, you, you would find it nearly uh, impossible to comprehend what this um, literal translation uh, by me of the, uh, of the entry into Israel law says about somebody who is an infiltrator. So it is a temp So what they get is something that is called a temporary visit permit that is granted to somebody who is staying in Israel without a permit, against whom they have a removal order until the removal from Israel, which, as I said, is uh, is one that is ineffective. They cannot be done. Right? Um, now, remember that second figure that I mentioned, 11 years. So some people would have been holding this permit for 11 years. Um, now, they haven't been holding, you'll be um, not relieved to know, they haven't been holding the exact same piece of paper or the exact same permit for 11 years. It would be more accurate to say they have been queuing in various conditions every month or two to get that permit renewed, which means, if you do your maths, they could be on their 60th permit, right? That is, that is, that is quite possible. Now, um, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This isn't very savory, but uh, uh, but it's it's just a reality. Uh, so, um, and I've talked about non-reforma uh, principle. So, so this is what this permit does, right? So, Israel, generally speaking, is a social welfare state. Um, it's, it may, there may be issues around uh, how wide and effective 
the, the healthcare system is or uh, whether there should be better protections for workers. I mean, the, the, a regular debate was in a, um, an OECD, uh, quite well-off country now, uh, you know, with a GDP that is, uh, puts it somewhere in the middle of the, of the European Union. Um, and that applies if you're a resident. But if you're not a resident, then you have no entitlement to welfare services. Again, for sometimes for 11 years, you get entitlement to emergency medical service because Israeli law says, basically, or the law and the rights of the patient says that any person in Israel who is in need of um, emergency medical attention should receive it. So it means if you have to give birth, then birth is emergency, so you'll be covered. But postnatal services are not an emergency, and so they will not be covered. Now, for some of you who may have been to Israel, you will know that laws are often um, the starting point of the discussion rather than the end point. And so that doesn't, of course, mean that if uh, a woman gets admitted and gives birth, then the hospital will kick that woman out. And, and in the vast majority of the cases, doctors are good people, hospitals are run by decent people, and that doesn't happen. What happens then is, there is simply no one that refunds or reimburses the hospital, that particular hospital, for that cost, because the system operates on a basis where if I were working in Israel or in the UK, I'd be paying national um, insurance contribution, the national health contribution, then those would go vicariously to the hospital to fund the services. Uh, and that doesn't happen uh, in Israel. And similarly for, the for, for parts of the education system where those services are provided, uh, because municipalities like Tel Aviv are, are being decent, uh, but they don't get re reimbursed by central government. Uh, and I think I think the fact that the, the point where this becomes particularly I don't know if Kafkaesque is the term, uh, it, may, it may be more uh, maybe just more surreal, is, is the question of, of um, employment, right? So the situation is this: generally speaking, as I said, Israel has various welfare entitlements. Um, if somebody is unemployed, that there is unemployment benefits, etc. Um, the idea generally being that you don't want people destitute, both because it's morally repugnant and because they would then um, delve into crime, etc. Um, but those are not provided to um, quote unquote infiltrators. But equally, they haven't been granted work permits um, because they were brought in as work migrants. And so there was a petition to the court. This is a court proceeding from 2010, so two and a half years into this 11-year saga. Uh, and the court was presented with this reality quite starkly. Um, and the state's response, well, 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 we get it. So, but we also still don't want to give people work permits. So we're just not going to enforce that prohibition. Unless you're in detention, and if you're in detention anyway, I will uh, clothed and fed and that and so you don't, you don't need to work, you can't work. Um, but if, otherwise you, you can work and over 90% work. Um, in fact, as I'll show you in a few minutes, the state otherwise in law recognizes the fact that they work because it now taxes indirectly their work. Uh, but, but it doesn't want to recognize this legally. Now in 2010 this was half funny, in 2018 that's beyond embarrassing because um, because this is this is still the legal reality right so this is just a projection of how to like a work migrant a working permit looks like and this one says in Hebrew this temporary permit and this is the clever thing for lawyers in the room 
Uh, it doesn't say this temporary permit prohibits you from working. It says this temporary permit is not a work permit, which is different. It's different. It doesn't mean you can't work. It just means this permit doesn't permit you to work. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and and this is the legal reality we're in. I mean, this is why lawyers exist. This is why Shakespeare said the ninth, that the first thing you do is kill all the lawyers. So, uh, so um, and... Um, and these are some some services, you know, they're, they're very good. And, and this, you know, whenever I talk about refugees in Israel, so the first thing I, I I try to I try to say is what I've said earlier, which is the uh, the point about you know hospitals and education system, and that's by and large being run by decent people who do provide those services, even if central government is not stepping in. The other thing is that Israel is is blessed with um, a remarkable array of civil society organizations, really. I think per capita probably the highest in the world, and and many of them provide incredible services to asylum seekers, physicians, for human rights. I know somebody who's who's had I think something like something over five thousand people in their care in a, in a very small clinic in, in over the course of of the uh, of the last decade uh, in a clinic in, in Tel Aviv. Uh, and there's a soup kitchen and there's a refugee seder, right, which was done several years back. But this isn't a replacement for for state policy. Um, so, how does this all then match to the question of refugee status determination? So, this is the reality. So, until 2013, the Israel the state's policy was, well, we can't deport these guys to Eritrea and Sudan, so why should we bother our system, burden our system with this ever-growing number of people who need to be assessed individually, we're just not going to let them apply for asylum at all. Um, but we're also not going to deport them. They're going to get those renewable funds. Then came in a policy of detention, which I already alluded to in our, our, our diplomacy. And so the court says, well, if you're going to start detaining people, then you also have to start um, assessing their applications. And so application assessments have started very, very slowly. And to date, 13 individuals from Eritrea got refugee status, with Sudan and Darfur, the Israeli policy has been particularly intriguing, which is not a single application has been rejected, but neither has a single application been accepted under refugee law. What has happened is several ad hoc arrangements, administrative decisions to give temporary residence status for <coughs> a thousand employees without acknowledging that they have a refugee claim. And this remains the case. Now, I think this is instructive because, true, these are three European countries, um, and they may all have a very generous interpretation of the Refugee Convention and other regimes, uh, although certainly refugee lawyers would not say this about Denmark. But you will see that even within those five <coughs> categories, uh, of, uh, uh, of uh, groups of nationalities of asylum seekers say the data in respect to Somalis or Iraqis or even Afghanis is quite different. But the data in respect of Eritreans, if you look at the two shades of green, so refugee convention status and other form of protection status, is nearly 100%. So there is a, there is a genuine disconnect between the way Israel applies the refugee convention in respect of Eritreans um, and the way in which it is applied by nearly any other um, convention-compliant country. And uh, a later on discussion, 
we can talk about where those differences lie. Uh, what I want to talk about then briefly before I get to the politics, which is which is where I want to um, end, uh, is about those four sets of policies. So the first one was to close the border. So to say effectively in 2012, we know that we, we just we're just going to stop people from coming in uh, altogether by fence. This raises a very important, interesting, uh, critical legal question, which I'll not, we're not going to discuss at this very moment, which is, is it compliant with international law to entirely, hermetically close your border to asylum seekers? So not to allow people to come to a border crossing and apply for asylum, right? The same way they could fly in. Or could it? Because they wouldn't get a visa. So the only way they could really try and get to claim asylum would be to come to a border crossing, but you can't. So Israel does have border crossings with Egypt, but you can't apply for asylum. And this this is a very important question <laughs> because it means ultimately that Israel has declared in 2012 that it will no longer accept impromptu arrivals of um, asylum seekers. Uh, it's not the only country that does this. And by the way, lots of the things I'll say later and by no means unique to Israel, even within convention uh, signatories. A and in fact, I would, I, would put it, I would put this further and say there are worse culprits in, in today's world in, in the Western, the, the global north, as you were. Australia certainly higher up there, Hungary is higher up there, um, and, and, and various others. Uh, but that's, that doesn't exonerate the behavior. It just puts this in, in rather broader comparative perspective. I think that is important. Um, this is the first point that was done, and this was immensely successful, right? So, from a thousand a month in the leading in the month leading to the closure of the fence, to a total of about um, 500 in the five the last five years combined, right? So, so virtually almost no one makes it. I mean, some people get manage to get through a lorry that somehow passes through and doesn't get properly checked or that. But it's virtually a non-existent new arrival issue, uh, which is important, I think, also for analyzing in 2018 what should be the policy, right? So if you could say, you could make a political point that says the, the political impetus in 2012, when there was an offense, maybe the legal impetus, no, but the political impetus should have been different in 2012 than it is in 2018, and it's not fully quite there. So on money, very quickly, um, what, the, what the state has done, remember, it said that those people can't work legally, uh, but they do have to deposit under this new deposit law 20% of their salary that they gain unlawfully. Um, and then when they, when they ultimately leave the state, they can get it back. Um, uh, um, and 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 also and also they can't send money to their family abroad because there is a there is a, a, a mutually exclusive assumption which is that if you've come to claim asylum it is impossible you also have family that would need some of your remittances because of course no asylum seeker has ever been in a position where they had family back. I'm, I'm, I'm being cynical. I hope that's clear. Uh, so, but, but this is the conjecture that, that's done in the law, and there are incentives for voluntary repatriation. So, so I mentioned, and, and I'll, that, that's the third point I'll get to uh, soon. So, um, there were three rounds in the Supreme Court. Um, increasingly, the state has reduced the severity of detention measures that, that it intended to apply to. Uh, 
um, to asylum seekers uh, or to quote unquote infiltrators, resurrecting that law for the prevention of the infiltration uh, from 1954. <coughs> All those amendments were struck down by the court. So the very first one had a near automatic three years detention for anyone who crosses the border legally and, and increasingly it was it was um, it was reduced, but even the third iteration was, uh, was struck down by the court. And so the state was left largely with, with limited capacity to, um, to limit the freedom of movement of Southern citizens. Yeah. So, yeah, so, so Holot was in the second and the third iteration, but the state is created, and this kind of goes, goes further into detail. Uh, so, I'm, so I'm happy to, to make that. Uh, 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 tangent, as you were. Um, there are two ver variables of, or two varieties of detention. One is in a closed facility, effectively a prison, and the other, which Israel has come up with in the second round after that was struck down, which was to say we're going to have this center, which we will call a residence center, um, called Cholot, uh, rather than the prison called Saunik. The problem was that Cholot was next to the prison, 70 kilometers from the nearest Israeli town, with a prohibition on work run by the Israeli prison service, with a night curfew, with a midday count, with restrictions on the stuff that you can bring in. Um, and so it kind of looked like a prison, and that's kind of what the court thought as well. So, um, um, so as a result, <laughs> that Cholot, Cholot was now, now is effectively defunct. So uh, it could still operate for very short-term detention, but um, it's no longer really operative. So the, the last thing the state has come up with, and this, this will take me finally to the politics, uh, is to say, well, we can't return these people to Eritrea and Sudan, uh, but we also don't want to give them status. Um, and so we need to find some other state that will take them in. Uh, and so, but, but we don't want to embarrass those states if they're doing this deal with us because arguably, according to sources that have seen the agreements, because they're secret, there's a confidentiality statement that was signed by the Prime Minister saying you will endanger Israel's foreign relations. Um, arguably, they include not just the movement of people, but the movement of other things, uh, perhaps in the other direction, um, from Israel to those states. Um, can be less conspicuous later if you want. Um, and so Israel has signed um, those agreements, supposedly, with Rwanda and Uganda, states U and R, as they are referred to in a Supreme Court case. Now, the problem in those agreements was that those countries did not agree to taking people unless they are willing to go. So they said, we're happy to kind of sign this agreement with you and to offload your burden of these people from Africa to a country they've never been to, never passed through. It's not en route from um, Sudan to Israel to pass by um, Uganda or Rwanda. They don't speak the same language. They just happen to be in the same continent. But it's um, uh, but we but we'll, we'll take them, uh, but only if they come willingly. Uh, and so Israel said, well, but that's that's not going to work. So um, so instead. In January, Israel announced that it's actually now in the process of finding a, a model by which they can send people to those countries coercively, because those countries now um, have agreed to it. 
which started, as David has mentioned, a series, actually unprecedented series, of petitions by doctors and social workers and educators, people who never get into politics, who said, well, look, this, this is, this is going to be your doctor. You can't deport people against their will to a place they've never been to, who you recognize can't be sent back to their country of origin. That's just not going to fly. And this ultimately has led to those countries backing down. So we don't know because we haven't seen the formal agreement, but it's quite possible there was a draft agreement to that coercive removal. But ultimately, we fast forward to April, and in April, um, Netanyahu announces that, that agreement with Rwanda. He now names the country. Rwanda's back down. Um, and that he managed to find this miraculous different agreement, a much better agreement, I'm citing it roughly, like an unprecedentedly good agreement for Israel in the press conference, which is available on YouTube, um, where Western countries will take half of the asylum seekers and Israel will resettle the rest. So country Canada, maybe um, Sweden will take it. Ten hours later, his coalition partners freak out and he renounces that agreement with UNHCR, with the UN agent, uh, refugee agency. Slightly embarrassing. Um, there were various tweets, congratulatory tweets in both directions. Uh, they're still available. They haven't been, have been deleted. Uh, and, and then he said, well, we're still going to try the other state. We're still going to try Uganda. Um, and two weeks later, that didn't work. So this is April. We're now in September. We're back to square one. And, and, and where is square one? And this is where I'll finish. Um, square one is, is the politics of this. Um, because ultimately, it's now back to politics. And it's back to the political spectrum. I mean, the, the, the law has done its part. It stopped detention, um, I think rightly. Uh, it stopped coercive deportation without the agreement, at least of those other states. Um, not sufficiently rigorous. I think it should have stopped coercive deportation, period. But ultimately, politics stopped coercive deportation. So that's, that worked. Um, but law can't do everything. So it's ultimately down to, to the politics. And, and the politics is this um, evolving government narrative um, countered with a counter discourse and where I want to end, which is the asylum seekers agency. So what I want to suggest is there were three discursive themes that run through, um, the, especially the first years of arrivals, um, posing refugees as a threat to national security and identity, uh, as a threat to personal security, and in this, indeed this rather old um, um, conjecture of labor infiltrators, for people who are, who are infiltrators, hence uh, they pose a danger, but they've come to seek work, which is why they're not asylum seekers. So examples of the first go back to 2010, with Netanyahu standing at the site of where the barrier is starting to be erected. He says, we must also lay the infrastructure that will prevent the free movement of illegal infiltrators. We're going to erect an obstacle in the south, as this issue is not less important than national security and the other issues mentioned in the same speech the other issues were Iran, Hezbollah, and Hamas, posing this as a national security threat. Um, the former Home Secretary at the time, 2012, said the infiltrators, along with the Palestinians, <coughs> would 
quickly bring us to the end of the Zionist dream. Most of those people who come here are Muslims who think this country doesn't belong to us, the white man. That's why I said there's some quotes which don't leave a lot of space for doubt uh, as to. Uh, next now this is doubly ironic, of course, because he's um, he was the leader of a party that was set up by Sephardic Orthodox Jews to fight discrimination against Orthodox Sephardic within the Orthodox community in Israel. Of course, the other irony is that the vast majority of Eritreans are not Muslim. Um, so, well, I suppose there are triple ironies here, but I'll leave you to that. And, and he then went on to say the infiltrator threat uh, is just as severe as the Iranian threat. I've asked the Treasury to a budget increase to build detention facilities, and until I can deport them, I'll lock them up to make their lives miserable. This is a direct quote. This is, this is, this is in an interview in a newspaper. It wasn't taken out of context. Those of you who follow contemporary British politics, some people try to suggest that what they say explicitly is taken out of context. This was in context. This, this was the context of, of that speech. Um, and Netanyahu, in part, in, in ammunition here says there are now 60,000 illegal infiltrators. It could easily go to 600,000. This will undermine the state in a considerable degree, undermine its identity as a Jewish and democratic state. Um, and anyone who wants to make our country a country that is not Jewish should continue to support those people. This is somebody who is now deputy foreign minister, was a member of parliament, Siti Kotovelli. And this was a caricature, um, the one on the right is a caricature in Ma'ariv in one of the newspapers the day of the court, the first court judgment, supposedly saying where Herzl wanted a Jewish state and now you've got an African migrant kind of looking over the state. So it's been, a, it's been overtaken by African migrants. Um, and the second was to suggest these are a threat to personal security. We see the crime, the rape, the violence in this country. We see an enemy state has been established in the state of Israel. Um, um, he later became the Israeli um, ambassador to the UN. Miri uh, Regev, who is now the um, sports and culture minister, has infamously said that the Sudanese are a cancer in our body. Uh, in a recording, um, she then apologized to cancer patients. Um, and uh, there were various demonstrations as well. And the third was this idea in 2010, remember at the time when there, were no, there was no access to the asylum process at all, saying these are not refugees, more than 99% of them are seeking work. And Eli Shai saying, let's be clear, these are not refugees, these are labor infiltrators. Of course, you could ask if they are, uh, why, do you, why do you not send them back to their countries of origin, right? If they are labor infiltrators. Um, the counter discourse to this, you know, has the particularism and the universalism here. The particularism is uh, exemplified by the statement, you know, from Shelley Yefimovich, the then uh, leader of the Labour Party, now a, a prominent uh, member of that party, saying, "I am the daughter of Holocaust survivors. We have not been, we have not only the duty, but also a profound moral obligation as a people to give shelter to refugees." Um, the universalism is exemplified by. Uh, Dov Hanim from uh, one of the, uh, now the United Arab Party, he is a Jewish member of parliament from a left-wing party called Hadash, who said Israel after the Second World War and after the Holocaust was one of the initiators of the convention. It's a signatory state and has a duty in terms of international law for couching it, not in terms of Israel has a duty because it's a country of Jewish people who suffered persecution, but Israel has a duty because it's a member of the international community. This finally, very finally, 
takes me to Asylum Seekers Agency. Um, and I think one of the one of the blessings in the case of the of the of the, uh, the overall picture uh, is that asylum seekers have actually become very Israeli uh, in a good way. And the good way is that Israeli society is very political, uh, which means there is actually genuine ability for people, regardless of their um, presidential or other status, to speak in the public arena. There is there is a presence, um, and uh, it's a far less regimented public arena than many countries, including many countries in Europe, that are familiar with. Um, and one of the things that has happened within this movement was an emergence of, of agency for asylum seekers themselves, who have launched, they said, well, look, you say um, you want to send us all. Um, let's see if you can manage without us. So there was a three-day strike. Remember, people who are in a very precarious job situation, essentially making um, Tel Aviv's cafes and restaurants inoperable for, um, for, a, for, for those three days. There was a 30,000 strong protest in Tel Aviv and a march from the center from Cholot to Jerusalem. So there are all sorts of clips, and perhaps for want of time, I'll, I'll, we'll move to discussion, but I can play them later, of Eritrean and Sudanese women chanting, we need asylum, we're not infiltrators, of the march to the Egyptian border and a demonstration near the Knesset. And these are some of the photos. This is on the bottom right, was Rabin Square. This had, by the way, also negative effects, as you would imagine. So this was on the main page of, uh, main, from the front page of uh, one of the newspapers, saying, you see, we're flooded. Um, so this, of course, was the, um, the unintended consequence of having a mass number of people demonstrating in the same space. Um, and this was, this was the march from Jerusalem, and this was the march along the road. So Chemle Shalom means, um, may you leave in peace. Uh, that's that's the external gate of, of that detention center in the south, um, and marching along the highway, uh, very very uh, symbolically. And we fast forward to those demonstrations that David mentioned. Um, don't force us to leave and look for refuge elsewhere. Um, and a demonstration saying if we were white, we'd be differently. Uh, and that was in the midst of those, of the height of the demonstrations against uh, deportations. Uh, so for those of you who will be interested, um, this is a sample of stuff I've written on this, uh, and I'm very, very happy to send stuff to people. This was the U-turn of Netanyahu. I'll maybe leave this uh, on in case we want to play this later, but I'll, I'll pause here and uh, see if the uh, Reactions, comments, contestations, and, and the like. Yes. The people who are talking about this for epidemiology and refugees. Yes. Are they allowed to study? Ha! That's a very good question. Um, allowed is a strong word. <laughs> um, so, so I suppose you mean territory education, so university. You don't mean uh, you don't mean school. So, 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 so education is a really important angle, and I haven't really touched on this at length. So I apologize. Um, but, um, thank you. Thanks for for, for coming. <laughs> uh, so, so primary education is actually provided by law to every child in Israel, regardless of their resident status, and so that has to be provided. 
there's a really interesting segregation case of one municipality that wanted them to be in a separate school a lot um, and failed. The court rejected it. They said, well, they don't speak the language as well. They wouldn't be culturally different, and that failed. Um, discrimination law and so they study those Israeli kids which is why you know some some of them have been here 11 years somebody came when they were three they're Israeli right they they celebrate Jewish holidays basically that's that's what they do those kids because they're predominantly in school uh, so primary school is actually not a problem at all secondary school is not automatically granted to any person it's granted to residents so municipalities would provide these services and then not get reimbursed by central government Universities, um, so public universities can only let residents or people who get a student visa study, and so they can't study in a public universities. But private colleges can have different admission um, methods, and so there are actually a couple of private. Incidentally, law is a very popular subject. Uh, there are a couple of um, private colleges, IDC, so the Interdisciplinary Center in Herzliya. And um, uh, in the um, School of Management in uh, in Mission Zion, who have had um, asylum seekers or refugees study. Of course, if they are granted refugee status, then they can study. But the likelihood of that happening, as I've tried to intimate, is, is very low. Those Sudanese, uh, the Darfuris, who have now been granted this slightly awkward recognition. They, they would fall into that category as well. So you've got now a thousand, you know, of all ages and all of them who want to study, no one will be able to, but there are now a thousand people who, who have that status. They can theoretically be in a position to study. That makes sense, yeah. But uh, I think this is very interesting. There's a lot of South Africans who have So, so the second, I, I was not aware of the first kind of um, uh, phenomenon that you described, so I'd be really, really intrigued to hear more. I, I don't know about that. Um, yeah, the second, it's a, the second, the, the kind of, the story in Hebrew it's called, I mean, it's a slightly offensive term, but the Hebrew the term would be Akushima Ibrahim, mm. right? So, so in Dimona, so, so the, the black skin Israelites. Uh, sorry? And the Black Panthers was a uh, was a social unrest movement in the late 60s, like early 70s, against uh, what was then the Mapai, so the the, the Labour government, and uh, that's these are the people who go the mayor said they're not nice, uh, they 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 are uh, yeah that's different. Uh, they, they were they were mostly Mizrahi Jews, so. By, by in the May. Uh, was, uh, and then they called Rastas, Ganges Walker, and they called names. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, I, I, so, so I'm not sure, um, I'm not sure the story of the, of, of the, of the black Hebrews as well in, in English um, speaks directly to this, but I think it speaks to. Um, it speaks to the wider challenge I think that the state has mm -hmm. because it's um, um, 
and I, and I said earlier, actually, maybe, maybe, maybe it's a, I'll use this as a segue to, to go back to that point about, uh, um, about, about the Ethiopians, right? Because when there were demonstrations, and thankfully, the, the, the tide has kind of turned a bit, and especially those recent, the, the, the attempt to enforce deportations, I think, has backfired. And actually, lots of people who, who turned a blind eye to the story entirely suddenly understood the situation and actually become much more supportive. So I think ultimately, ultimately the, 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 the discourse is now more nuanced, certainly more knowledgeable than it was in the past. Uh, but I think in the, in the years that I've described, so the, the, those photos that I have from demonstrations in 2012 in Hatikva neighborhood in, in Tel Aviv, Riz, Miriam, speaking to the people, saying, you know, these are cancer that have to be removed. Um, there were lots of Ethiopian Jews who were attacked, um, you know, hassled in the streets, but because ultimately you see somebody in the street, if you're going to racially profile, you're going to racially profile. And so, and so that created a real, uh, I don't so know, the difference in between the Eritreans and Ethiopians. Yes. Yeah, well, absolutely. So, um, so, uh, and, and, and I mean, to throw in, you know, to, to throw in a, another spin and around, kind of more recently, there was, of course, a, a big demonstration, a big protest of Ethiopians against uh, the way police treat them in, in Israel. Um, so it's, it's a community, it's been, in a way, I think that links to the wider debate, is the, the state institutionally, uh, and I, I am careful because I, cause I know, Especially, in, especially in the UK and, and Europe more broadly, I mean, there is there is an attempt to then generalize, and I think actually I wouldn't. Uh, I think I think it is it is a more complex picture, uh, but I think there are there are genuine struggles with uh, with degree of racism, ethnic racism in the state um, that um, that some people possess. I mean. It, it, and, and sometimes in unusual quarters. I mean, to me, that quote from Elisha is so revealing because, I mean, how, you represent a group that clearly did suffer a um, degree of racism within its own religious community. Why would you, why would you project such a clear racist term? But he did, and so it's a, it's a, it's a complex, it's a complex situation. Uh, yeah. So Israel doesn't. So, so I'll. So did you want to follow up on this? Okay. Well, I, so, I wanted to follow yeah. up in terms of the demographics. Yeah. Trying to prevent Israel yeah. from overrunning. Yeah. 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 No, that's a really good question. So, um, so Israel. So I'll put on my um, nationality, international uh, nationality lawyer hat. Um, there are two, by by large, two general ways in which people. Are granted nationality. One is usually, one is usually. Usually is the law of the land when you're born in a state, uh, regardless of who your parents were. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's the classic example of this is America. I mean, the whole debate of the whole Trump accusation at the time that Obama is not really American because he wasn't born in America. So, who, whatever, if you even if you stop in America on a plane or traveling from South Africa to wherever, and you, the plane takes you by uh, America and you're born, you're, you're an American. Uh, Israel doesn't operate under that system, um, 
but nor does it automatically operate under a eu sanguinis model which is the law for blood which means that you're foreborn um, to a specific type of character you're automatically granted um, citizenship so in israel if you're born to um, at least one israeli parent in israel then you're granted israeli citizenship if you're born to um, um, two Israeli parents abroad, that's fine as well. If you're born to uh, um, a non two non-Israeli parents in Israel, which would be the case for most of these children, then you're not um, granted citizenship. In fact, you're not, you're not granted any status because um, you, you wouldn't need a status until you're 16 uh, when you get an ID card. Uh, and at that stage, so they have, we, we, don't, we don't have those people yet, right? Because uh, they've been 11 years. Um, if, if the situation is retained, you may get kind of young infiltrators in five years' time. If they marry, if you've got an Eritrean uh, who marries uh, an Israeli, uh, and then they have a child, then that will be, uh, be different. They'll, they'll have a child of an Israeli born in Israel. Um, so, but, but again, I mean, not to get into the much wider debate over marriage law and personal law, it would be very difficult for, for them to get married. I mean, if, you, if you've got two Israelis who want to get married and they're not of the same religion, then they can fly somewhere. Uh, they can't marry. If they're not the same religion, they can't marry in Israel. But if they, because uh, there's no civil marriage. But if, but if, but if you've got, uh, say, a Christian and a, and a Muslim, to take that example, two Israelis, want to get married they could fly to cyprus or they could do all sorts of other arrangements and get them recognized as married but of course that eritrean would not be able to travel outside israel to marry her israeli husband so it would just not happen they, they, they just uh, so 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 the rea so the reality to to the extent that somebody thinks that those born in israel are now posing a demographic threat by virtue of have them have becoming israelis they just need to read israeli nationality law so that's, that's not the case well, look, I think 5,000 kids, which is roughly the number that's been projected since, uh, uh, are not going to, uh, even if they were all granted citizenship, we're not going to threaten a 9 million uh, population. I mean, there's always an irony, uh, and I, I don't want to get into the Israel-Palestine discussion at all, but, but there is a bit of an irony that, that some some of the people who are most vehemently against asylum uh, seekers are, say, for instance, very happy to, um, to continue to have the, the so-called quote unquote united Jerusalem which includes 250,000 uh, Palestinian Arabs who ultimately are all entitled to Israeli citizenship if they decide to take it. Uh, the, the vast majority don't. So uh, there, there are all sorts of ironies uh, but it's, it's a state full of ironies. Uh, that's why it's fascinating. But all the children of kids is not only Israel but Absolutely. Well, well, as I said earlier, I mean, I mean, Israel is not the only country that mistreats asylum seekers. It's also certainly not the only country that has restricted nationality. I mean, the worst case at the moment, I mean, is is what happens to Syrians in Lebanon, um, who are there are there are hundreds of thousands. I'm not exaggerating. Of Syrians who are now destined to to be stateless in Lebanon, so people who have left Syria several years ago. Um, not gotten 
supports Lebanese citizenship to who doesn't give citizenship to non-Lebanese, doesn't give citizenship to the Palestinians who've been there for generations. Um, and they, they, they will be stateless unless something um, dramatic happens. Um, so it's, uh, all this is actually, you know, to say this is a model of, of, of a flawed system, but it's not a system that is out there, you know, beyond comprehension for refugee laws. In fact, the reason it's, it's, it's an interesting case is, is because lots of these practices, either in a combined form or in a different form, I employed elsewhere. There is, you know, bad practice travels as well as, as good practice. So, yeah. yeah. It sounds to me a lot of this sounds to me like use of, you know, there's a very clever we're going to study Talmud of clever legal tricks to kind of avoid sort of the full application of the law. And like a lot of this seems like, you know, and so I, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in your pros your thoughts about the prospects of the future of hmm. of actually creating. You were talking about a dysfunctional system. Yeah. Are there any prospects for a functional system and what would the levers be because of the negative political discourse? What are the kind of levers for that? I mean, it, it sounds like it requires a change of government uh, to, to do that. Or, or would any government be able to get a functional regime So, yeah, I think that's, that, that's, really, that's really important, actually. I, I, think, I think we were on the verge of that happening. So I think had Netanyahu not, frankly, flipped, because he freaked out by some of the reaction that evening. I mean, I, I actually remember this because I, I was I was in positive shock, right? That doesn't normally happen. But I I saw so because I was you know we, we were we were trying to figure out. I mean, I was pretty active, and in fact, I I, I claim a little a little miniature role in in Rwanda's decision because I convened a panel in London to which we kind of shamed the Rwandan embassy. Um, to, even though they wouldn't come to the panel, they've sent the letter explicitly saying we will not accept anyone coercively and that. So, and that was a few weeks before that, uh, and I was involved with the letter to the Attorney General. So, um, uh, <laughs> that window on the 2nd of April, when Netanyahu said, well, look, we, we, this was in the offering for months now, UNHCR has done, and he's right, by the way, that he was unprecedented. He's, because why would why would UNHCR assist? I mean, think about it rationally. Why would UNHCR assist a country in the OECD that has a GDP of forty thousand dollars per capita and has less than zero point four percent of its population as refugees resettle them in another Western country? This is a Western country. Why, why does it need anyone else to resettle its refugees? But UNHCR agreed. UNHCR said, "Well, look, we, we want these people to to get proper treatment." And so the deal was one one for one. So 20,000 or 18,000 get to be settled elsewhere, and 18,000 would have to get status in Israel. And my sense is that process of regularizing their status of 18,000 people would have necessitated the creation of a functional asylum system, and that hopefully would have also created this not being ad hoc, because it's too large a number for something to be done ad hoc. It would have taken years um, to put in place that asylum immigration policy. Now, I have no... Um, you know, illusions that, that policy would not have mimicked or you know copied Canada's or you know Sweden's, but it would suffice for me. It would have copied you know Greece's or Italy's or that. Like, like it would have been you know reasonably you know um, acceptable policy within international refugee law. And 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 because the because we were almost there, I you know well you know um, that I'm I'm, an, I'm an, still an optimist, and I, I still think it will happen. There will be. Will be a regularization. I think it. Uh, I 
think ultimately this this is this is a, a lose lose situation. Have, nobody wins from this. So people in South Tel Aviv suffer because of people there in irregular status who have to um, you know rent in that particular area, and uh, and there is tension, and uh, there is obviously more uh, more crime as well because you've got people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, um, and and they're not helped. And, and actually, the UNHCR plan would have included lots of support for South Tel Aviv, which is now not coming. Um, I think there will be political pressures for this to change. Um, um, so uh, I'm, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna put money on this, but I but I uh, but I but I think it's possible. Yeah, then you. What is preventing the ten thousand Ethiopian Jews who live in Ethiopia uh, from being resettled? What is preventing what it? Is um, I, th I, uh, I think I think there is a uh, well f well that's that might be one good reason I mean they may they may not they may not want to and I, and I think some of them would have had some some of the experience of the Ethiopian community and would, would be perhaps a bit more reluctant I, mean, I think I don't know enough about Ethiopian politics but it strikes me actually the the recent peace agreement between Ethiopia and Eritrea may change some of the dynamics as well. It may ultimately change some of the dynamics in Eritrea, by the way. Uh, I don't think, another point of optimism, I don't think, you know, dictatorial regimes are there forever. Um, I'm an optimist kind of about the world. I think ultimately the general trajectory is towards democratization and towards um, liberty and freedom. And uh, it's quite possible you know, Eritrea will become again a place to which trends could repair, but just not one at the moment. So um, I think there's also no government um, policy at the moment encouraging that movement of Ethiopia. Uh, I think if there were, um, then, then maybe dynamics would be different. They'd incentivize it, find ways to do it. Uh, um, as I said, I, mean, I, I think, I think there, is, there, is, um, there is a degree of uh, unease about I'm uh, putting it very mildly. Yeah. What would be the position of, for lack of a better word, it's called clergy, the Jewish religious uh, positions on the matter? Ah, that's a really, that's a really, yeah. In a, in a sense, that's kind of um, a, 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 bl a blinding, a blindingly obvious omission from a, from a talk uh, in a synagogue on Saturday morning, right? But I haven't directed, <laughs> I haven't directed, no, no, it's, uh, it's uh, but it's a valid point, and it's, um, there are two points I'd make to this. I think internationally, Jewish organizations, including Jewish organizations that have a religious um, underpinning, have actually been incredibly vocal in recent years on this matter, invoking um, um, Jewish values. So you know, I'm involved in the UK in a group called Denekassan, which is a human rights, Jewish human rights organization, World Jewish Relief in the UK, has, has engaged in this, even the, the Board of Deputies, the UK, the, the American Jewish Com Committee, which is not strictly speaking religious, but does have lots of religious members. And there's been there's been a degree of involvement internationally. What what the demonstrations in this year, earlier this year, were the first time demonstrations and protestations in other ways, so petitions and that. The, one of the important letters was actually from. I think something in the order of a hundred rabbis 
from all streams in Israel, which very rarely sign a letter together on anything. Uh, they certainly not sign a letter together on conversion, right? Uh, but they, uh, but 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 they they did sign a letter on this, right? And they said this is this, including some rabbis who are you would characterize, and I, I don't like necessarily you know drawing those those direct links, but you would characterize on the religious right in Israel. So including rabbis in you know settlements. Uh, there's even one who kind of he wasn't clear whether he was joking or not. Kind of said, well. You know, there's plenty of space for them in the settlements. They could come walls in the settlement or something like that. But yeah, there was a, probably a bit tongue in cheek. But uh, uh, but 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 there were certainly. I mean, I think I think when I said earlier, in a way, it was implicit what I said earlier. Too. When I said earlier that the the the, the coercive deportation idea was kind of over the top, was pushing it and created a backfire. That was part of the backfire. And suddenly, lots of people felt, well, it's one thing for us to kind of have this. Well, it's a country where law doesn't always kind of, yeah, I mean, sure, they can't work legally, but they work, and it's fine, and like they get, so it's kind of one thing to have that, it's, it's a very, I mean, you know, I, I, I have lived through that society for a long enough time to know it's very much part of the mentality, um, but, but it's another to kind of say, well, I mean, of course, some people have taken the have reacted over the top as well and kind of said, well, we're going to hide people in attics and that, like, which, you know, tried to invoke images from from from, uh, uh, from the 30s. And, and that was inappropriate. And I think, I think it was a mistake. You didn't need to go there. But but it did evoke an, an emotional reaction from people who don't engage in politics in this way, don't put themselves on the parable. They don't like uh, to be pitched because because ultimately, this is this unfortunately still is largely a right-left debate in Israel. Large. Um, I don't think it ought to be. I mean, I understand why there's a right-left debate on, on Israel-Palestine. I don't think this should be that sort of issue. Uh, and ultimately, it will only get resolved to go back to David's question uh, if it ceases to be one, because Israel is not going to not have a right-wing government in the near future. And so. <laughs> on that, I'm not optimistic. So, uh, so it's uh, uh, um, so it, it has to be parts of the of the liberal right that we would have to understand uh, these commitments, and and it does exist, and, and so and so ultimately, as I said, I think I think you will you will. Uh, sorry. Oh, Absolutely. I mean, I, I've left. Obviously, as I said, I've left out a whole chunk that I would have would have covered part, partly this. I mean, and it's something I've, I've written in critique. So, so the court deserves praises for doing something that, as I said, you know, three out of fifteen times laws were struck down were on, on detention of asylum seekers. It's obviously not a popular thing to do when you've got a government that opposed those judgments. Uh, and when it did so, it did so in the main, based on Israeli law. So the idea was um, Israeli basic laws, which are a defunct form of an Israeli constitution that are intended to be um, full when they're completed, when the whole slew of basic laws is completed, there's meant to be a, a 
through the Israeli constitution. Um, there is a basic law called human dignity and liberty, and that basic law says that any, any person in Israel um, is entitled to liberty, and their liberty can only be taken away uh, in a proportionate manner in the law that is um, legislated for a proper purpose and which, uh, which, is, which is fitting Israel's character as a Jewish and democratic state. And so ultimately this court says, A, it says every person, doesn't say every citizen, doesn't say every resident, so every person has the right to liberty. Secondly, this is clearly restricting their liberty, and it's restricting it in a disproportionate way. I mean, my critique of this is, I think, it was restricting it for an improper purpose, because we were more popular people, which shouldn't have reached proportionality at all, but that's kind of a more internal niche legal debate. Your point, however, was, was on the role of, of the, the, the absence of the international law, and that ultimately is a problem, because in the absence of that ratification, international refugee law is not directly a applicable source. Um, so they couldn't say, well, the reason we have to strike this down and the reason we have to interpret it this way is because Article 31, non-criminalization of the refugee convention says so. The reason they have a right to freedom of movement is because Article 26 talks about freedom of movement of refugees. Uh, the reason that they have rights to access to education is because of Article 24. So there, there are all sorts of things that they could hook onto, uh, which petitioners mentioned, uh, briefs UNHCR has mentioned, but the court was was more. So I'm sure I'm sure it had you know an implicit effect. I'm sure the fact that is what it's to the fact that those conventions say what they say, those that other countries applied in that way had an effect. But it couldn't have had a direct legal effect that makes sense because of the absence of ratification. And it's a problem. And it's actually a problem genuinely for a country to say it adheres to international principles and not ratify them for so long after sixty eight for sixty four years. It's just not just not on to, to put it in, in, in kind of blunt terms. Yeah. So what I was saying is that the politics uh, is more powerful than the control world because mm. uh, we saw we, we, we are taught in Torah mm. and for your center in Egypt. Yeah. And the Muslim world said that the US centers in Egypt. But it doesn't happen that way. Although it's not Israel alone, it's all the Gulf states. Yeah, I come to this uh, the scientists of work, the scientists in, in, in Saudi Arabia, the scientists, they, they don't allow overpopulation. So they have this control on Israel. And anyone coming out of Saudi Arabia cannot get a citizenship, cannot get a citizenship, cannot bring a wife and children. So the certain laws that maybe the UN needs to review, because when they come here, we welcome them. And when we go there, we actually get all these. Yeah. Well, we wish we welcome him. We don't always welcome him so much in South Africa. Our communities are also <laughs> yeah. not so good. But maybe. <laughs> sorry, did you, did you have a part? Sorry. I, I, well, you were going to say. I think Mark, wait a second. Okay. Then we have to close. Okay. I think, oh, I'm just listening to this slide. I think I strongly believe. Uh, also, okay, it was let's see. Well, Israel is doing what they call it so bad about for coming selling people into bringing them into the territory yeah. and do what they're doing. I think also South Africa as a country is still a lot because we also have a big homework to do. Because um, I know some people who come from the states and also to go to hospitals they don't get the very 
girls, things like sensitive kids, some small families have made them listen. They're not doing sensitive kids. So I think also at times we still have a lot of things to do. Before we can throw a stone to the next house, I think there's a lot of work. We don't do a lot also of homework. So in as much as it has to stop somewhere else, but this has to be, we have to clean our house because we have to be in the the politics, they tend to, the people want to drag everything away, which is amount of corruption. It's kind of like, yeah. It's yeah. yeah. That's a, yeah. I agree. Yeah. So thank you so much for this really fascinating debate. Well, thank you for engaging. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs>